0: Well, welcome again, thank you for coming. I'm Charles Garland, some of you are new, so introduce myself, and uh, names are on the back of the bulletin now, and if you can sort them out, if you're good at matching. Um, Reminded of the uh, Simpsons episode on Super Bowl Sunday when Reverend Lovejoy went into the church and just showed him up at the pulpit saying, I just wanna thank you all for coming out on the day of the big game. And then it turned around and panned The congregation and there was one couple in the back and then one guy by himself on the other side and the guy by himself jumped up and said ah the game I forgot and ran out so we'll try to have you out in time to get to Super Bowl parties. Um, We're going through a series on the Ten Commandments and we haven't gotten very far yet. The first commandment you shall have no other gods before me uh, is what we're looking at again today. Uh, Last week we looked at it uh, in terms of Uh, idolatry is uh, making substitutes for God in your life and um, there's another aspect of it we're going to think about today which is the exclusive claims that are made by the first commandment that there's only one true God that you're to worship and that other gods are not real which is probably about as abrasive a thing as you could say Uh, living where we live and thinking like most of us think today um, go back to Homer Simpson. Remember an episode where he's walking around saying, Everybody is stupid but me. And uh, when I preach this sermon, uh, it sounds like you hear the southern redneck preacher saying, Everybody is delusional but me. And so, if nothing else, you'll have a story to tell about the southern preacher you heard talk this way. But I hope you'll indulge me, because the Bible's claims about uh, God... Who he is and what other beliefs about ultimate reality are, uh, are very much in contrast to what our culture thinks. Um, It's one of the places where Christianity seems especially odd to people here because common sense where we live, almost without having to have it proved to us or told to us, is that nobody knows the truth about ultimate questions, that um, religion... God, truth, morality, these things are relative. These things are defined by every person in his own way. Uh, not things that are knowably true in a way that's true for everyone and not just as a matter of opinion. And so uh, bear with me. Hope this will be uh, somewhat clarifying if you're somebody considering the Christian faith. I hope it might be a reminder and something reassuring. For people who are living out the Christian faith in a culture where this seems so strange. So let me pray for us and then we'll read the scripture. We're going to be in Jeremiah 10. Father, please uh, help us open our hearts and minds to you. I pray um, for people for whom this is very difficult information that you would uh, be merciful and kind to them. I pray for people who feel um, like they have always known and believed this, that you would uh, expand our hearts in compassion for people for whom the faith is hard. So come meet with us and help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read from verse 11 to 16 in Jeremiah 10. Thus you shall say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he, that is Yahweh, Who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from its storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. For his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. And This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What is the answer to the question of life, the universe, and everything? Nerds. It's uh, exactly right. It's 42. Deep thought. The computer, the supercomputer, took seven and a half million years uh, to wrestle with this question and came out with the answer. 42. The answer to life, the universe, and everything. It's a Douglas Adams uh, reference. He's eccentric, maybe crazy, but really funny. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But yeah, 42 is the answer, which is uh, as commonsensical as any other answer anyone could give. It's funny partly because you think even a supercomputer with 7.5 million years to think about it uh, could not solve these questions in any kind of absolute way. Um, nobody has a corner on the truth about ultimate reality. There is no one big answer that we could know. At best, we're all kind of groping in the dark and trying to find our way. That seems like common sense. Uh, Even if people hear you talk about it and you mean like you really think what you believe is true with a capital T, they assume you don't mean that. They assume you're saying, I've found something that I find privately engaging and helpful in my life um, and congratulate me uh, for the warm little heart I have because of that. If you say, I believe in Jesus, people think, oh, it's nice that you found your truth. Uh, Good for you. I hope that works well for you. If you tell someone I'm becoming a Christian, it sounds to them like saying the same thing as I'm going to India on a spiritual journey, or I'm going to go visit the thin places around here, or I'm going on the keto diet. The answer most people want to give to you where we live is, well, good for you. Good for you. Congratulations. You know, I hope that is meaningful to you. And people mean that sincerely. Right? Because without having it argued, we just know, living where we live, being raised where we're raised, certain things are true. And that is that religious questions can't be true or false. They're just they're just matters of opinion or sentiment. They can't be true or false. Anyone who thinks that they have a true perspective on ultimate questions is either naive or just blindingly arrogant. I think that you know what others don't know. You you think that you're right and everyone else is wrong. As a matter of fact, if you believe that strongly enough, you're probably dangerous and more prone to violence in the name of your ideas than uh, people who are more modest than you are. And so we assume, if we don't say it explicitly and out loud, that all religions are basically the same. They're basically the same thing with little different um, Flavors, And so I want to talk about what the Bible says here, which is very pointed, and it's not an unusual text in the Bible, very pointed about God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the biblical God, is the one true and living God in a way that makes other claims false about ultimate reality or religion. And um, I'm going to give you a two headings, uh, these are defensive. The first point is that um, an exclusive claim about religious truth is arrogant because nobody can really know the truth about these questions. So that's the first point. Um, let me ask you this. Do you think parents should impose their religion on their children? Um, yes. that's what I gotta, I, it was rhetorical. I was just pausing. <laughs> the uh, um, I would guess that um, the number of people that have said yes in this room is higher than the uh, city average here in Tucson, wouldn't you? Um, because there's something creepy about it. Kids are vulnerable. They're easily manipulatable, persuadable. They're, they're prone to believe what you say. Uh, to impose beliefs on them um, and ask them to claim those as their own before their prefrontal cortexes have fully formed and whatnot, um, could is seen as abusive by a lot of people. Um, let me ask you another question. Do you, do you believe in imposing your views of dental hygiene on your children? City average on that one, I'm thinking, would be a lot closer to yes, right? Uh, well, of course, I'm gonna impose my views of dental hygiene on my children. And my question for you is uh, why does it make people uncomfortable to think about imposing their religious views and not their views on dental hygiene and I think the answer is well because I think my views on dental hygiene are true I think they're true and I hope suspect, wish that my views on God and the faith are true but we don't think that they can be true in the same way um and it's nobody's proved that to us, nobody's argued that point with us in any persuasive way. It seems normal to us a priori that religious ideas cannot be true in the way that other things are true. we can't know them and the idea if it is ever stated kind of goes like this well we know people now. I mean, people from all over the world come, and so we know people who uh, are from many different religious traditions or no religious traditions at all. We know people from different philosophical traditions, and there, a lot of them are very beautiful people who are more moral than we are and who are wiser than we are and who live uh, admirable lives. And so since we know all that now, it would be crazy to say that there's one true way, and I know it, and they're wrong about it. Um, What kind of a person would you have to be to say that kind of thing? Um, Because it sounds like you're saying you know more than deep thought, the computer that had seven and a half million years to think about it, that you've done an exhaustive survey of comparative religions and picked the best one, which I've never heard a Christian claim to be why they hold to the Christian faith. But if you go to freshman philosophy class and they drag out the elephant illustration about the blind men and the elephant... You know, one thinks it's a trunk, one thinks it's a wall, one thinks it's a snake, one thinks it's a rope. You know, you think, yeah, that's cool, that's right, you know. Um, And we should all be more tolerant and kind to each other, uh, since none of us has a corner on the truth. Um, But these ideas don't bear very much scrutiny, honestly. Um, The story of the elephant only works if somebody's not blind. And sees what's going on. Right? Uh, Dick, Dick Kyes, an author I like, calls this the immaculate perception. Uh, that is the person who sees what none of the blind suckers who are groping around see. There's one person who has ultimate, absolute, dogmatic certainty about ultimate reality. And that is that it's an elephant. Everybody else is groping in the dark. But the one person sees. It's probably the most... Uh, A dogmatic claim that anyone could make is to use the parable of the elephant as a picture of religious reality. We don't believe in Jesus because we've done a comparative study of all religions. I've done some. I'm guessing a lot of you have done some. Um, But that's not the reason that I hold to the Christian faith. I hold to the Christian faith because I believe what Jesus said is true. I trust him I think that he's not misleading me in what he says it's a matter of my confidence in him and what he has said rather than uh, my exhaustive study of comparative religion and my own brilliant sentiments and insights into spiritual reality I trust what Jesus Christ said I find what he said plausible in this verse you see um, the passage we're looking at verse 13 he talks about when God utters his voice there's a tumult of waters in the heavens and um, this isn't even the most clear place in the Bible that, that tells us that God actually speaks to us, right? That our knowledge of him isn't the beautiful, deep reflections that we have made and insightful notions we have about God. It's what he has told us about himself. So we're not claiming to be brighter than anyone else. We're not claiming to be uh, uh, more religiously sensitive or or able to see than other people. We're saying that we trust what Jesus has said to us. In verse 16, it says at the end, Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. That is, Yahweh is his name. That is the name he has told us to call him. We know him thus because he's spoken to us. And so the thing that's unique with Christians that should make us less arrogant is that uh, our confidence is based on what God has revealed, not on what we have deduced. Our confidence is in what he has revealed. In the gospel reading we had this this afternoon, it said, uh, Jesus is the word of God become flesh, that no one's ever seen God, but Jesus has revealed him. And so when we look at Jesus Christ, we say, I trust him, I believe him, what he says about God. Now, um, That doesn't keep us from being arrogant, as you well know if you've been around Christians, much. Uh, It just ought to keep us from being arrogant. Um, It doesn't fix arrogance to believe that you only know what's been revealed. Uh, But it should make you, instead of arrogant, it should make you humble. To say, I'm totally unsurprised when people who disagree with me are smarter than I am are better parents than I am, better husbands, better friends, uh, more admirable people, um, smarter, uh, more spiritually attuned than I am. I'm not making any of those claims. I'm saying that God has revealed himself and I trust Jesus and what he said. So it ought to make us humble. It ought to make us deferential to people. Also should make us modest because we only know what's been revealed. We don't just have insight into everything. And think that all of our opinions are true because we happen to trust Jesus. He's told us a few things and has not told us a lot of things and those things we don't know. So um, there's reason for us to be humble instead of arrogant because God has revealed himself in Jesus. Second point is that we suspect if you believe you have religious certainty, you're going to become intolerant or violent. And so it's better just to assume that all religions are really the same. Uh, that way we can cut down on all the conflict between religions. So you'll become violent or intolerant if you believe you have a corner on the truth. That's why I think Americans uh, like it when the Dalai Lama talks. You know, Because he sounds so open and so cool with all the other religions. Hey, if you're a, if you're a Muslim, be a good Muslim. You know, if you're a Christian, be a good Christian. If you're a Hindu, be a good Hindu. And uh, that sounds to comp- like it comports really well with kind of the zeitgeist here, because you say, you know, I want everybody just to be able to get along and have their religion and live at peace and all, and that sounds good, but what the Dalai Lama is saying is really very different than what a normal relativist would say here in Tucson. Uh, the Dalai Lama isn't saying none of the religions are true, so it doesn't matter which one you believe. He's not saying all the religions are true, so it doesn't matter which ones you believe. He believes, as a Tibetan Buddhist, that everyone, in order to re- achieve ultimate salvation, has to believe in sunyata. If I'm saying that right, which is unlikely, but it's the the doctrine of emptiness that physical the physical world is illusory, and ultimate salvation is being uh, absorbed into the all soul, the human personality and human suffering and physical life on earth are illusory. And no one who denies that fundamental doctrine of Buddhism uh, will ever achieve ultimate salvation. He believes that. He just thinks he's got time because of the cycles of reincarnation and that you might be bumped along a little bit uh, through another religion until you finally come to the one true and right religion through which only you can receive eternal salvation. Um, Because he knows what everybody knows, that all the religions aren't the same. Uh, almost no religious person has ever believed that, unless maybe it's like a, a uh, American Protestant that lives now, right? Who uh, wants to, sentimentally to believe that. But no religion teaches that all religions are true, and ours is just one of them. They don't all believe the same things. They don't have the same doctrines. They have a there's a fair amount of uh, overlap on ethics, right? but. Um, But no religion in the world teaches Uh, all the religions are the same and they're all good. Even the Baha'i become Baha'i, even though they're respectful of other religions. So um, this is not something that's true of any religious tradition, and it's pretty arrogant to uh, say that about the religious traditions. You all are just the blind people feeling for the elephant. I happen to know. You're all the suckers wandering up the mountain to the same mountaintop. Uh, You don't know it, but I know it. Because I see all, and I have the immaculate perception. Um, All religions aren't the same this way. The problem is though, we worry if if people think they've got the truth cornered, they're going to be violent. Because maybe that's happened once or twice in history, that people who thought they had the truth cornered became violent. Maybe you've heard of instances of this. Um, But violence is not a uniquely religious problem. Violence is a human problem. And any idea we have of ultimate reality works as a great justification for human violence. And non-religious people, as well as religious people, use their ideas of what's ultimately true to justify their violence all the time. Now, there's a yarn said by atheists, uh, typically, it goes like this, it's a little self-flattering, it says, uh, you know, when someone's a militant Christian, they shoot abortion doctors. If someone's a militant... Muslim, they detonate bombs. If someone's a militant atheist, they write a book. Ha! Huh. Right? You know, it's the ha's implied. And, uh, but that doesn't bear much scrutiny, does it? Um, a lot of people have felt the detonations of bombs that Stalin and Pol Pot and Mao set off. A lot of people have been tortured uh, into purity of dogma by the atheistic regimes of the 20th century that we've observed. Violence isn't unique to religious people. Of course, religious people use their religion to justify their violence, uh, just like everyone does. But that's not a religion problem. That's a human problem. This passage very starkly says that all religions aren't the same, that gods other than the true God aren't God at all. It says in verse 11, You shall say to them the God, small g, that did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the earth. Or as uh, Paul said in the passage in 1 Corinthians, these are so-called gods. He says, of course, it says idols are nothing at all. They don't exist. But, of course, there are tons of them, you know, because people make idols. Uh, people make idols in heaven and on earth, he said, statues and ideas. But here, verse 14, he says, every man is stupid and without knowledge, which that's kind of a striking passage. But he means when we set out to devise gods of our own, when we set out to devise religious truth, uh, we show ourselves to be so limited as to be uh, completely useless. Uh, We're without knowledge. Goldsmith is put to shame by his idols because the images are false. And this is a common theme in the prophets of the Old Testament, to uh, do send-ups of the idols. Say, look, you you took a chunk of wood, and half of it you used to make a fire to warm your hands, and half of it you carved a god out of, and you bowed down and worshipped. And this is patently foolish. It's a very common trope for the prophets of Israel. They sound very much like uh, Freud and Marx and Nietzsche uh, when they say that all the religions of human beings are human constructions, right? These are projections of our ideals onto God that we use for a sense of safety or a way to get power for ourselves and hold down the masses, right? Those were the accusations that the uh, seminal atheists at the end of the 19th and early 20th century presented, and they sound just like the the, uh, prophets of Israel when they say that. You know, this is... Jeremiah sounds like Freud when he says that your gods are projections, right? That You've just made these things up and they have no power. He says in verse 15, they are worthless and a work of delusion. Which, you know, I wouldn't lead with that in a conversation myself, right, with someone else. But he's saying that there's delusion involved in almost all of uh, humanity's religious activity. That sounds uh, sweepingly arrogant. It doesn't sound sweepingly arrogant to us when Freud says it. Oh, well, he's, he's just being scientific and empirical. It doesn't sound sweeping and arrogant to us when someone's describing the different paths up the mountain and says every one of the people on the mountain is delusional. That doesn't sound arrogant to us. That sounds sweet and reasonable and peacemaking. But when God says it here... It puts your puts you on edge, doesn't it? He says uh, they are the works of delusion, and at the time of their punishment, they shall perish. So, uh, does that mean that uh, violence isn't a problem? That it hasn't been a problem for Christians? Of course, it doesn't. Um, but what we have in the Christian faith embedded is. A rationale for nonviolence that we uh, betray our faith when we ignore. We have a rationale for nonviolence uh, because of our certainty about Jesus Christ and religious truth. And what we have is the notion of grace that we believe our standing with God, our faith in God itself, comes to us as a gift, not an accomplishment. It's not something that we have deduced. That we've come to because of our spiritual sensitivity or that we've come to because of our surpassing intellect. We think we have come to believe in Jesus Christ uh, because God has been willing to give us the gift of faith. No credit to us. That's what Christians believe. And believing that should undermine any sense we have of using violence in the name of our faith. Because we don't believe you can coerce anyone to become a Christian. That's something only God can do. So using violence to try to urge people to convert uh, is not only evil, it's useless. Because you can't create a Christian through coercion. You can't do it. Um, And also, the uh, idea of grace should make us respectful and humble towards other people. All right, so we don't see someone who disagrees with us as Christians and think, well, you must not be as bright as I am, or you must not be as spiritually sensitive as I am. You're more deluded than I was or am. We don't think any of those things. I like, think you're very likely uh, smarter, a better, better person to wrestle with these issues than I am. Um, if we're different, to my credit, it's only grace. It's not something I've accomplished. All right? So intolerance and violence are betrayals of the Christian faith, Uh, Rather than things we can justify with the Christian faith. Because it's a religion of grace. So we don't think all religions are the same. But we're not intolerant. We're not looking to suppress the voices of other people. We're big friends of religious freedom. And the wide open public square and marketplace of ideas. Because we think if we can persuade people about the truth of Christianity, they'll believe it. I think it stands up well. Uh, in any kind of an argument or persuasion, but we're not into coercion. The other thing is this. um, Anytime someone starts talking about all religions kind of being the same, the notion seems to be that anybody that's a good person, God will probably like them. You know, it makes sense that God would like people that are good good people who are trying hard, if they're devout in their religion, seems like God would like them, wouldn't he? I mean, you know, anybody that's anybody that's good should probably be okay, you know. And you hear this at funerals all the time. You get all the worst theology at funerals. You know, so-and-so was a good guy, and I'm sure Jesus is happy to finally have him there with him. And, you know, that kind of... That's southern funerals probably. Anyway, um, but the idea is all good people are going to be loved and received by God. And... There's some problems with that. One is, who's defining what's good? Because Jesus' definition of good doesn't leave us any of us in a very good spot. Um, but the other question is, what about people who aren't good? Like, what hope is there, if all religions are fine for anybody that's good, what hope is there for somebody who's not good? What, what happens to the fraudulence, you know, and the bigots, the liars, the addicts, the arrogant? The abusive. What happens to them? The wonderfully inclusive, all religions are the same view that good people all get to go be with God uh, is not good news for me. I don't know if it's good news for you. Christianity is narrowly exclusive. There is only one God and you will have no other gods before me. But Christianity is crazy inclusive because it takes anybody and says... You're not beyond the pale. You're not too bad. The mercy of Jesus is bigger than whatever you've done or ever going to do. So you may be uh, a racist and there's hope for you. You could be an abuser and there's hope for you. You could be a liar and there's hope for you. And this is an inclusivity that I don't hear anywhere else. Uh, It's part of what attaches me so much to Jesus is because, like Walker Percy said, we love those who know the worst about us and don't turn their faces away. And Jesus has not turned his face away, but he's come to our rescue. He's come to our rescue. So there's no meritocracy here. We don't have hope just for good people. We have hope for anybody because the one true and living God that the Bible describes is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is full of grace for you. Let's pray.